it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Thanks for finding us back in the electronic labyrinth and welcome to part two of our discussion of Jurassic Park. In part one we reviewed Fallen Kingdom. Here we turned critical attention to the franchise at large. First, trying to identify cinematically what Spielberg does that others cannot. And then, as fans of the films, revisiting the original texts to consider their still untapped potential. Jurassic World is an interestingly bad film. I've found a way to actually make, make positive of its negatives. But Fallen Kingdom is not like that. So I ask you, Luke, what is it that Jurassic Park does well that the sequels do not do well? And you are very welcome to give us some examples throughout the sequels. Uh, what does Jurassic Park get right? Too often in our peer group, too often in articles, we will be told the reason we like something is just because we liked it when we were kids. That is not the case. They are superior films to a lot of the popular films we have now. There are still dozens of terrific films being released. We have some magnificent auteurs working right now. American Hollywood cinema is in rude health. Blockbuster cinema is devoid of ideas the films of our youth were were better it's not just a sentimental attachment they are superior so tell us point to some things that work in Jurassic Park <laughs> well I mean the short answer is it's a simple story it's really really simple and um, I felt a bit vindicated this week for anyone that isn't aware doesn't go to the one sensational shot website often uh, I wrote an article a few weeks back called Why Jurassic Park Isn't About Dinosaurs. I wrote it for a website called Flickering Myth, did an abridged version for the One Sensational Shot website. So go go there, check them out. You can, you can read them. And um, I felt a bit vindicated and also a little bit guilty because uh, Spielberg then summed it up uh, better than I did because I thought I'd come up with a, a semi-original reading of the of the original Jurassic Park film because I for many years have been trying to put my finger on why I thought the original was was superior to anything they tried to do with it with the property since um, and I was watching my Jurassic Park Blu-ray collection in semi-anticipation for uh, Fallen Kingdom uh, and I, probably because I haven't watched some of the sequels on Blu-ray ever so I was interested to do that and uh, I was watching the what they call the Return to Jurassic Park documentary that was filmed around 2008-2009, released around 2010, I believe, for, for the first Blu-ray release. Um, and I hadn't watched it since around 2010-2011, which is when I first got a Blu-ray player when I was living in Ipswich with my friend John and Clint. And I remember one Saturday morning being horrifically hungover. I went down to HMV, picked up Jurassic Park on Blu-ray, and then and then watched the documentary. I don't think I've ever watched it since in in almost ten years. But uh, so I wonder if, if there was an earworm in there where I I got this from Spielberg. But I was watching it in the other day, and he said that Jurassic Park was a simple story about a man and a woman who man wouldn't commit, didn't want kids went to the island, and uh, then they decide to start a family. You know, he gets over it, he, he, he grows. And I thought that was a wonderful way of putting it. So I wrote I wrote the article before that, but I wonder if there it was in the back of my mind. But at the very least, I was vindicated that 
Spielberg obviously thought the same way uh, I did, um, or at the very least elaborated on. So yeah, there we go. In my opinion, Jurassic Park isn't really about dinosaurs, really. It's about a guy who's set up at the beginning. He doesn't want to commit. Uh, he, he doesn't want to have kids. And this is something that we can all get to grips with. And as we move through the film, of course, he becomes a surrogate father to Lex and Tim, who we know are, their parents are going through a divorce. They're absent from the film. And then by the by the end of the by the end of the film, Spielberg's very much setting up a lot of key shots with the family unit. Cameron does this in Aliens as well. There's some there's moments in the Med Bay uh, when they have the fight with the chestburster, and um, sorry the face hugger, and 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 Newton Hicks and Ripley are all very much there in in the shot when they and they all hug together. You get that a lot in Jurassic Park uh, in the control room. Uh, when the kids run up to Ellie in the lobby after the kitchen scene, suddenly it's they're the family group, they're the family unit. And I think ultimately that's why Jurassic Park works so wonderfully. It has all this other stuff that's in Crichton's novel, uh, which is around, um, obviously, you know, man tampering with nature. I always remember Michael Crichton's wonderful quote um, that humans are, our power is more limited than we realise. We can make an aeroplane, we can't make the air, we can make a boat, we can't make the water. Uh, so we always think we're more powerful than we are. That's all in the novel. And, you know, Michael Crichton was really toying with that idea from the off. Um, his characters don't have elaborate backstories around family situations. But I think what I was trying to get across in the article to a degree is that the Jurassic Park film is an adaptation of the novel. And, of course, Spielberg had uh, was from a divorced uh, uh, divorced parents. His his father he blamed for many many years for leaving them, and a lot of his early films, as we all know, E. T. etc. are about divorce, and uh, even in Jaws, the family unit is an element, and and the, you know the fact that they're not really divorced in there, but uh, there there are problems, of course, when he when he puts other kids in jeopardy, and he realizes that he's got his own family to protect, and that that's an important aspect of that film. So yeah, I think ultimately uh, Jurassic. Park is is when in Spielberg's point of view is is this film about about family and it's about a family unit about them coming back together. Um, to go off on a slight tangent, I know that Spielberg was was traumatized by the fact that he thought his father had left them, but it was revealed to him uh, by the time he was a man and who had already made E.T. and made his eighties films. Uh, by the mid to late nineties, I think he was he was becoming reacquainted with his dad again, and it turned out that his dad hadn't left them. It was his mother who'd had the affair. And his dad had just said one day, I'm going to go and the kids can hate me, and but they need to love their mum. Uh, and I think that that's, that's an incredibly... Incred- wow. Yeah, did you not know that one? It was in a great documentary I did, that I think it HBO did. in my mind. That's called Duty. That's something... Oh, not to sound ridiculous, but that's something that has been... Uh, duty is no longer considered a virtue. And an excess of duty results in the First World War. Mm-hmm. But duty and service is important in moderation. That's incredible sense of duty and honour there by Spielberg's father, blimey. Yeah, it's one hell of a thing. And he's very touched when... I think it was HBO who produced a documentary about Steven Spielberg. It's a couple hours long, two and a half hours long. came out a couple of years ago. It's really good. It was on Sky Arts not so long ago. Uh, I, I might do a Google, but I think what I might do is put it in the show notes, Fletch or something, so people can pick it up on one sensational shot dot com. But nevertheless, um, I think the first film's simple, and that's what it is. And even in Spielberg's own words, whether I had remembered it from the Blu-ray ten years ago or not, 
he thinks it's a, a simple film about a, a father becomes a sur- uh, sorry a bloke who becomes a surrogate father to two kids. Um, he openly admits Lost World is is a more complex story, and Michael Crichton's novel is cold, no warmth to it at all. Even the original Jurassic Park, I guess, doesn't have a lot of warmth to it. But the original Crichton novel has a lot of good stuff um, in there, which is is sadly missed. We'll come to some of it when we'll talk about what we want to do, maybe with future sequels. But it does talk um, a lot about evolution, which is really, really interesting. There's a lot of stuff in there about gamblers' ruin, things that Malcolm had to say in the original shooting script for Lost World that were cut. But they, what they tried to do is with the, with the with the Lost World film was turn it into the basics of the novel, which was about one group of hunters, one group of gatherers, and they had this ecological message. But ultimately, I think it falls flat because. The Lost World film, when you rewatch it, I rewatched it not so long ago. It's it's like an average Spielberg film, and unfortunately, an average yeah. Spielberg film is leaps and bounds above, you know, what what anyone else can do, <laughs> to, you know, can can produce when they're doing the damnedest. So it's a lot of the set pieces are, are yeah. absolutely fantastic. The raptors in the long grass, no one can shoot that yeah. stuff. You see the tails and the heads bobbing. Uh, when the raptor jumps out of the grass and attacks the guy, the black guy turns around, his flashlight is in the raptor's face. Lex had never seen Lost World, and she watched it with me a few weeks ago, and she said, oh my god, you know, that shocked her. For a film like that, a special effects film, to shock you, which is already 20 years old, um, it was really impressive to me, and I thought, hey, this guy knows what he's doing, this Spielberg guy. Um, I think Lost World has fantastic set pieces some great performances Pete Postlewaite wrapping his uh, mouth around the dialogue I used to be able to do his monologue on the game trail uh, verbatim when I was a a 10 year old kid Um, but ultimately I think Lost World is just too complex a story it gets bogged down in um, in a bit of Spielberg sentimentality with the with with the ecological message when maybe Maybe it should have been pulling back a bit more and telling a bit more of a, a harder story. And then, like I say, Jurassic Park three, Joe Johnston can do it, can turn around an action sequence. I'll always admire the guy. He designed it, Boba Fett and X wings and Tie Fighters, and you know, is yeah. is is part of the is responsible for a lot of the visual language of my entire youth. But um, the Tyrannodon scene, I think, stands above uh, stands equally alongside anything in any Jurassic movie. But like I say, they threw the script out six weeks before shooting. If you've got no story to tell, you shouldn't shouldn't have made the movie. Um, so so unfortunately, I think that the, the sequels fail because ultimately they they fail to tell a good enough story. Uh, whereas the first one isn't even about dinosaurs. It's a wonderful, simple, simple Spielbergian film about family that's kind of where i'm coming from on it unfortunately it's such an incredible premise an island filled with dinosaurs it it feels vacuous unless you've got this other stuff to go with it it's always the case isn't it it's always the case that with the original a filmmaker is expressing themselves and their own psyche their own opinions they're they're expressing an element of their personality and with spielberg it's usually absent fathers in most of his work in the 80s and even into the 90s even saving private ryan Empire of the Sun and Hook. <laughs> yeah, you can just you can go by all of them, um, but then that reason for being is removed as soon as we get to a sequel, and especially once we get to sequels that are no longer directed by the original team. And I think Joe Johnson, at least, he is one of their guys. Yeah, in as much as uh, Carol Ballard is Mikhail Salomon, 
there are directors that have... And Ronnie Howard is another. Directors that have worked closely with Spielberg, Lucas and Coppola for almost 40 years. They're their people. Mm -hmm. They're apprentices. uh, And you get pictures like Wind and Fly Away Home and with uh, Frank Marshall, Arachnophobia and Congo. It's Congo, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Regular listeners will remember that for for two weeks in 1996, I did think was superior to Jurassic Park. <laughs> I thought it was a 10 out of 10 film, and I thought Jurassic Park was 9 out of 10. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember my reasons for that. For a couple of years after uh, after Dark Knight, so this was 2008, 2009, I maintained that X-Files, I want to believe, was a superior film to Dark Knight. But anyway, oh, yes. we'll move on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's your embarrassing one, isn't it? Yes, I, th- I knew that you had one. I couldn't quite recall what it was. Um, but yes, I think one problem with contemporary blockbuster cinema, the directors aren't speaking from themselves. And if they do have something to say, it's usually self-reflective. Sorry, usually self-reflexive. Uh, and that's what I found in Jurassic World. It isn't really a film about Trevorrow and Connolly. It's a film about their reaction to other films. Mm. And I, the, the Coen brothers used to get slated for this throughout the 80s. Up until Fargo, mainstream critics and criticism said that they were style over substance and it was all just genre pastiches. Mm. As, as enjoyable as their work was, it was nothing but surface, which is bullshit for anybody who's properly watched Raising Arizona. Mm-hmm. And oh, Miller's Cross... I've read some fantastic analyses of Miller's Crossing and how it deals with gay characters. And we'll talk... I, I do hope we'll revisit and visit the work of the Coen brothers later this year in another electronic labyrinth because it's well overdue we've done six or seven of these issues and we haven't even touched the Coens Mm. they're my favorite directors but uh yeah it it feels too often that modern directors on blockbusters are not given enough time it's not expected that they'll give anything of themselves to the piece as we've said Spielberg uh, greatest blockbuster director of all time all of his films are about what intrigues him the most about absent fathers about family and usually about aliens and or Nazis in the Second World War. Yeah. But it's always about family and where is my dad and what is my dad? Mm. And what does what, what what is a father? What does it mean to That's me? That's probably where Last Crusade's his favourite indie film, you know? That, that film works in a way that, I don't know, it, it could have been replicated on the fourth one. And it wasn't. Because you can obscure daffy conceits and mad effects and ridiculous stunts with... Decent storytelling and, importantly, decent filmmaking. Mm. It's the same problem, as I alluded to earlier, with Prometheus, where Prometheus is written like it's a film from the 70s or the 80s. You can't get away with that shit anymore. You can't get away with Rafe Spall and Sean Harris going up to this unknown alien entity and essentially going, here, boy, here, boy, maybe I've got a milk bone for you. Nonsense. Audiences are far too savvy now, as well they should be, and that's one reason why Slapstick is not as popular as it was in the 20s. Because we've had 80 years of comedy. I always used to say as a kid, even when I was quite young, that the reason Lost World wasn't quite as good as Jurassic Park. I didn't yet have my reading of Jurassic Park, but I thought Spielberg had grown up too much. Because there's a big deal made in the press for Lost World that he was, he'd had a four-year break. Because uh, he'd done Jurassic Park and Schindler's List back-to-back. And and that was it was took a lot out of him doing two films in one day. Yeah. He's talked a lot about how when he was driving to and from set to film Schindler's List, he was listening to tape cassettes in his car of Johnny Williams' Jurassic Park scores and and themes and melodies that he was signing off on and feeding back on. 
So it was very difficult for him to do that. And he was shooting Schindler's List during the day and then going back and I guess remotely or whatever it was in 93, somehow looking at what, what Michael Kahn and his guys were cutting together for Jurassic. And Lucas had some element of involvement, didn't he, in Jurassic Park? Yeah, he was he was heavily involved. And you can see why then in the prequel, his light bulb went off in his mind for the Star Wars prequels. Because the two, the two things I'll say about the Star Wars prequels is Lucas spent years doing Young Indiana Jones, which was a period drama about history with big costumes and uh, about how governments cause wars. And he was helping to film Jurassic, uh, helping, sorry, in post-production on Jurassic Park, where his own company ILM were doing digital effects. And both of those two factors led to him wanting to clearly by night, because in 1994, the year after Jurassic Park, he started to write uh, Star Wars Episode One. Um, so yeah, Luke, Lucas was involved in post as well, while Spielberg was out or, uh, shooting Schindler's List. It's difficult to understand. First off, that the bloke who directed Jurassic Park could also direct Schindler's List in the same decade, right? That Let alone the same that year. That filmmaker could be the same person, yeah. And then to be doing them simultaneously, yeah, is uh, is unimaginable. Um, the difference in tone, yeah. Uh, I, I, I now to an extent, I slept on Spielberg for a long time. I wasn't particularly interested him in him from age like uh, probably fifteen to twenty five, twenty eight. And it's only when I, it was what Schindler's List is one of the pictures that brought me back to him, and I've watched that film probably a dozen times, and I've had it on in the background. It doesn't seem like that sort of film, but I've had it on in the background in terms better understood its filmmaking, and that's when I realised how it is that there are very few filmmakers, very few Hollywood filmmakers, and certainly nobody in blockbuster territory that knows better where to place the camera than Spielberg. It's often said that it's preternatural within him, and I'll give you a couple of examples. One of them is from Schindler's List. The speech which Ermin Gert, played by Rafe Fiennes, gives before the dissolution of the Krakow ghetto. We're not going to post it on the website because I don't like posting videos. Uh, the website, the podcast is audio and the website is words and pictures and that's how it's got to be. But check it out on YouTube or your preferred video provider. Go back to the DVD, the Blu-ray, the Laserdisc, the VHS, the Zotrope. I don't mind. Find that scene, uh, a short 90-second, two-minute scene in which Rafe Fiennes explains... Uh, the, the presence of Jews within Krakow will from this point forward be seen as a myth, as a rumour. And alongside that, scenes of the people of the ghetto going about their daily lives, making breakfast, praying, kissing. That's wonderful. And the camera placement in it and the editing in it is supreme. And Jurassic Park, one of my favourite edits is... After Grant gets off the phone with... Oh, yeah. One of my preferred lines. The children are fine. Which sounds so malevolent. Oh. <laughs> Where are my children? The children are fine. I want a million for each. You, know? <laughs> you rich bastard. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. But, um, I thought yeah. you were going to talk about the he edit where the... Um, the children are fine. Just do me a favour. Tell them to sound the damn helicopters. Which is the line you're saying. But I love the edit. You don't see a raptor. There's no animatronic. There's no CG. Yeah, yeah. But, you, but you know they're coming through the glass. Sure. And then they just you cut uh, you yeah. cut straight to the two gunshot holes where he clearly missed or whatever. But yeah. Grant raises the shotgun and a cut to the shotgun on the floor and a cut to the ladder and a cut to them climbing yeah. the ladder and kicking the ladder yeah. away. And there's, yeah, as Luke says, there's no raptors at all. But the, the, the escalation of tension from nothing within eight seconds... Ramped up, it's, it's astonishing, mm. uh, and that could have been done. I mean, if you think about the economy of filmmaking, both in terms of the edit and 
literally the budget immediately the audience feels this is game time it's similar things are done in in aliens by cameron as well and with the reason we regard these films from our childhood as superior to what we get now is because they are made by better filmmakers filmmakers who studied better knew their craft better and i think that modern filmmakers have been cursed by cg here's an i'll give you an example Cameras no longer have to cut because they're not really cameras. It's computer graphics unwinding in front of us. And so when dinosaurs fight now, uh, the scene will be it'll be 10, 20, 30 seconds before a cut. You mm. know, everybody thinks they're children of men by Quaron. Uh, no, that doesn't that doesn't make it more real. It doesn't escalate the tension. It doesn't engage me in it. Unfortunately, most most of the time it draws attention to its own artifice mm. And all I see in front of me is, you know, with the best will in the world, you think, man, I mean, this would be good if I was on PlayStation right now, but it doesn't feel like I'm watching a film that I'm interested in. Yeah, I completely Filmmaking agree requires editing. Otherwise, we'd just be Andy Warhol, wouldn't we? You know, it, or it, it would be Russian arc. There's a, there's a place for 90 minutes without a cut, but I don't want action sequences. To an extent, Michael Bay is, doesn't always have the worst handle on these things. Michael Bay is pretty good with action sequences. He understands that it is good to cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, m- maybe not seven times a second, but I'm so tired of 10, 15 second cuts. Which, there's nothing real in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know. part of that was, um, you know, uh, Pratt running down the hillside chasing after the gyrosphere. Or the stampede of animals was kind of cute, you know, dinosaurs are fun. But all of them are clearly running to the water to escape their own film, aren't they? They're plunging into the depths of the ocean thinking, <laughs> sweet release, I don't have to be in the Fallen Kingdom. And yet the film is going to... There will still be a third. The film will take 800 million. Yeah. I mean, Jurassic World took a billion. Yeah. A billion. You're not allowed to, uh, but... you're not, allowed to not take a billion now. Uh, if it, it's always frowned upon. If you're, if you're a big film... Like all this solo box office, I know solo's underpacing terribly. There's no getting away from it. But um, if you don't take a billion these days, you're nobody. So it'll be interesting to see what it finally yeah. does end end at with uh, in its final run. Um, when I when I was a kid, though, I thought, like you say, <clears throat> I thought that Spielberg had grown up, and I thought that Jurassic Park was the last film that he had uh, the last kind of kids film he'd ever make because he after that four year break he went from uh doing films like Jurassic Park and Hook to um obviously he'd done then done Schindler's List but then four years later he comes back with Saving uh sorry uh, Lost World and Saving Private Ryan and we go into a much just darker feel it's interesting i i think that the director of photography used for the original Jurassic Park was Dean Cundey who um was on things like who Framed Roger Rabbit? Prior to that, even like Big Trouble in Little China, which is obviously lighthearted, yeah, comic yeah. booky. Uh, he was on the all three Back to the Futures. He did uh, Hook with Spielberg, and he did Jurassic Park, and then he did the Flintstones. Don't forget the Flintstones again. Spielberg gets off scot free, but he had an exec produce credit on there, and he was yeah he, Stephen Spielberg exactly. And it was an Amblin film. Uh, he then went on to things like Casper again, Amblin Entertainment. And that was uh, his son directed Casper, didn't he? Casper is is Brad Spielberg? No, maybe I'm wrong. No, sorry, yes, Brad Silberling, who did um, 
series of unfortunate right films. sorry now, that that film's an underrated film but we'll we'll get off track but it's by silberling yeah yeah, yeah sorry Spielberg, brad spielberg i got brad spielberg i got that very confused <laughs> but anyway yeah so casper apollo 13 ron howard of course these films are quite bright aren't they and yeah, then from yeah. there he's doing um, i mean by this point i'm just reading a list I, I admit but he did some disney stuff with flubber parent trap the list could go on anyway the guy does Kukundi. the diger yeah the, it, it, yeah, it's yeah. bright stuff um anyway so of course he so spielberg finishes jurassic park and then of course um he's then working with kaminsky on uh as his dp on schindler's list who he then comes back with on jurassic uh sorry lost world private ryan like this is his, everything basically exactly yeah. and this is his new feel it's darker it's more more primordial it's it, it's more yeah, mature with the bleach bypass process yeah mm. So my my point being, as a kid, I thought, you know what? He grew up. He took a break for four years. I'm sure he was still doing plenty of stuff. He was he was exactly producing Animaniacs for God's sake. But but he yeah. was he. It's at some point there he kind of grew up and started making slightly different kind of films. A Spielberg film, still a Spielberg film. But uh, there's a real break from that first Jurassic Park to the second. And as a kid, like I said, I didn't have my reading of the first one yet. Uh, as a film about a guy who becomes surrogate fa- a surrogate father, but I definitely felt a shift in just the look and feel between Jurassic and Lost World. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's a difficult thing for us to go back and understand the market in which Spielberg made Schindler's List. He wasn't expected to do well with it. He, I mean, he did it for free, swapped it with Scorsese. Scorsese had Schindler's List, Spielberg had Cape Fear, and they literally traded projects because Scorsese didn't feel that he could do the story justice because he doesn't have the cultural background. He's Italian-American, he's not Jewish. And, I, you know, I long for the days where there was a, such a coterie of filmmakers that they can just give each other their... And, you know, Lucas coming in on Jurassic Park in the way that he did, Emilius floating around throughout the late 70s, early 80s, working on 1941, for instance. What a, what a fertile time, what an exciting... Uh, just a, a time as Luke and I talk about, and it's one of the reasons we did the podcast in the beginning. You know, the movie brats. It's an exciting time, and it's a. I'm so enthusiastic and romantic about that set of filmmakers. But I, th- I think that you're right. Um, uh, Spielberg had done Color Purple and Empire of the Sun. Both are well received, especially Empire of the Sun. But to then take on a Holocaust drama after Hook, and around the same time as he's doing this dinosaur thing i think that the world was quite shocked by what he achieved with schindler's list and i i I am as well i mean it's not like a lot of his other films there are elements of it which are more like a terence malick picture in his use of montage and um although he has three or four well just three main characters really um it's Stern and oscar and Ermin Gertz, then the rest of the Jews, other than Embeth Davids, are broadly speaking, it's like a Walter Hill film where many uh, combine to form one strong unit. Mm. You've got maybe eight, nine, maybe a dozen characters that represent a, a greater whole, and we see facets of everybody's experiences through their experiences. Mm. But yeah, I, I think there's. There's credence to what you're well, he, saying there that he came back a different filmmaker. So, and, and you know, if to tr- to go from one DP to another, that is a definite change. Um, in, Nolan's done the same. He was working with Wally Fister all that time, and now he's got Hoyt van Hoytema, and that it can't be overlooked. That's a, a decisive and integral change to a, f- a director's filmmaking capacity when you change DP like that. And I think 
all through the latter half of the 80s, he was struggling to mature. He wanted so desperately... He took on things like Colour Purple, Empire of the Sun, because he wanted to be accepted as a mature filmmaker. Don't forget, people... It's very, very, very easy to forget. In the 80s, the Academy thought Spielberg was sugar, the Disneyfication of cinema. You know, he was doing yeah, E.T. Yeah. He, he was the enemy. He, he, was, he was destroying art. Uh, we have friends, and, and you know, on both you and I could make arguments that him and Lucas are the reason we are where we are now. Mm. You know, yeah. but it just so happens that I think Lucas is a, a decent filmmaker, and Spielberg is a fantastic filmmaker. It's not his fault that everybody saw only the dollars and didn't realise the artistry in what he was doing. Uh, and uh, as I always say, there is there is room in the market for Scorsese, De Palma, Milius, Spielberg, Lucas, Coppola for all of them. We yes, the the market is proliferated with moribund blockbusters. Listen, don't go and see them. We've got so much stuff coming out of Megan Ellison's Annapurna. Paul Thomas Anderson is yeah. still making films. There is there is room out there. But you're right. And I mean, if we look at the um, the run that Spielberg was on, it was always Last Crusade and Hook going into Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. Mm. That's pretty rotten. That's possibly the worst run of his career. Because mm. always is okay. I like Last Crusade, but it is a second sequel. Mm. And Hook sucks. The art design design's is great. The design's fantastic. <laughs> the what? The, the art design and all that kind of stuff's great. The, yeah, the set yeah. design, the, the, saw, the, world, um, the world building, as they call it these days. It looks great. Yeah. yeah. Just earlier this year, Spielberg himself admitted, and I will say admitted, not conceded, but admitted in an interview with Empire that Hook didn't work. And he said, I have my days where I'll defend Hook, and then I've, I've other days where I'll accept that we didn't really have the script, and I think he's blaming Nick Castle there, but we didn't have the script, and I lent too much on throwing money and budget at production design just to see how, how good I could make it look. And uh, well, he's exceeded at that. Yeah, the, it looks awesome. Yeah, the the, the scenery is great, but I don't like I don't like the look of the film. Just in in the way that one of my faults with Jurassic Park is, as I've always said to Luke, I feel like it's shot in Brian De Palma's back garden. Unf- There's not yeah. a sense of scope. Uh, and unfortunately, and, and, that, I can't unsee any of that now. I, I kind of yeah, I ruined it for you a little bit, and this will lead us into our final conversation. I, there was so much to talk about in terms of Lost World. And Jurassic Part 3. And both of those films have wonderful moments. But I'd like to talk about what we as fans would like for the future of Jurassic of the Jurassic Park franchise. And it's rare that we do this. This is more of a local trouble thing. We don't usually indulge each other's fan interests to these, these kind of... Uh, I think the character should go in this direction. But what I'd like to see... And this is, this is my dream, Luke. My dream for Jurassic Park. Having said that it, the cinematography on the original feels a little closed in that I never get a sense of I, I, I too seldom get a sense of the vistas of the park when they're running with the um Ga- hold on Gallimimus Gala- yeah. <laughs> oh you almost I knew you could step in when they're running with the Gallimimus that's that's fantastic but too often shots around the paddocks the raptor paddocks and the electricity substations going into the basements they just feel like it's, it's tight. Uh, somebody's estate. You know, they could have gone to Coppola's Vineyard and said, "Listen, can we borrow it for a week?" I, I have a it weird. It is tight. You're right. I, I have a theory that around that period, and I could be wrong. I, I would really love someone to write in about this. If you go back and watch Jurassic Park and Lost World on 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 DVD, Blu-ray, they're not. You don't get. And I'm going to sound like a moron now. In terms of the aspect ratio, you don't get the black bars top and bottom of the screen. The whole thing feels like it's pan and scan. 
old school 4-3 TV from the 90s, uh, very tightly shot. And I wonder if in the early 90s, VHS being so prevalent as a format and no one having a widescreen TV, I wonder if they were shooting for that, knowing that on telly, on TV, when it's on the... On the on, uh, on a like on a movie channel or when it, when you've got it on VHS, you know they're not going to see any of this film anyway. So let's just let's just shoot really tight. Let's have all this stuff locked in. Um, but that's that's my theory on it. Uh, no one's been able to confirm that, and I would love someone who is more knowledgeable to to write in and tell me otherwise. I like that because you've offset our fanboy indulgence with some. Um... The elements, the the uh, the technical elements of filmmaking. T- talking of that, actually, like solo, I could take or leave solo, um, but there's just one shot made a lot of it worthwhile for me, and it's during the Kessel Run. A shot of Solo's eyes. Well, you probably you may not even remember. No, I don't. I don't remember just the that eyes. In, that insert by Ronnie Howard made me think. Yeah, Ronnie Howard's an all right director. He's a journeyman. I broadly enjoy his about half of his films, but just that one shot humanised it for me. As Han is steering the Falcon, mm. and it goes, uh, there's a one, just a two-second insert of a close-up on his eyes, and it conveys the excitement and vitality of the character, and that's filmmaking for me. That's what we talk about when we... It's not just like, oh, yeah, that dinosaur was cool, yeah, and people have guns and such, and some things are just cool like Muldoon. Muldoon is superb and that's one of the things I'll talk about in just a moment so um, I've I've always thought that elements of Jurassic Park are too closed in. I want a completely different approach to it. Um, A name cinematographer. Bradford Young for instance who did Arrival. Roger Deakins go all out. Roger Deakins. A a real top name cinematographer to expand the frame and take a completely different style a, a, a completely different approach to framing and shooting the action and I want a Jurassic Park that's either a 10-episode HBO miniseries, and it's not for the gore and such, but this is this is a sophisticated adult franchise, which is never treated as such. They keep inserting kids into it. You don't need children just because there were kids in the first one. Again, Luke, like this is what we're saying, isn't it? Spielberg put kids in the first one because he was telling a very specific story you know, about Ellie waiting for Alan mm. to become resp- uh, what's it called, receptive mm. to fatherhood. Mm. That's why there are kids in there. And then there's just kids in the other ones because it was like that in the first one. There it's are kind two of like kids. There are there well, are you know, two like... kids arbitrarily in the in the novel, and then they they lose one of them. But but yeah, you're right. I, I, I I'm not gonna rubbish your point. I get it. I know what you're saying. Uh, I mean, there's no excuse for them to oh, keep yeah, doing but, it every you know, every movie. But you know, it's yeah, it's true that the kids are in the novel as well. They're slightly the um, ages are reversed, aren't they? So no, no, no. I mean, in the Lost World novel, you still got two kids. There's Arby and oh, Kelly. Arby and yeah, yeah. 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 But, you know, there's part of, I, I would imagine that part of the reason that Spielberg kept these elements in is because he wanted to tell that particular story. Mm. So My Jurassic Park is one that may take place over 10 episodes of an HBO miniseries. You might be able to get it in in just a film. I don't want a franchise. I don't want open-ended stuff. If it's open-ended, it's because it's like, a you know, a Robert Altman film from 1978 where you're not meant to have easy answers. But I think I'd set it. There might be flashbacks and there might be flash forwards, but I'd want to set it purely over the course of the action of the novel, that possibly 72-hour period. And as I talked about earlier, where one thing I liked that Bayona did was slightly change the genre, this is how I would revitalise the Jurassic Park franchise. Take it out of family adventure and make it 
a kind of a survival thriller or even a survival horror like Aliens. That's what I'd want to do with it. Switch it up in that direction. But it doesn't matter about the certification. You could maybe get it down to a 15. But I want it to be an atmospheric survival horror which deals with the reality not of sharing an island with dinosaurs but living hour to hour in the circumstances of Jurassic Park. Because in the book, um, the Tikan workmen are still running about on the island. In the film, it's the island is evacuated, so there's only, uh, I don't know, eight people left, 12 people left. But in the book, it's more like a couple of dozen, maybe more than that. Although the boat has taken off, there are still people on the island and they're moving towards various last redoubts. Uh, Henry Wu is up in the the penthouse of the hotel Raptors above them, biting through the bars, with Ian Malcolm in the bed, mm. pontificating, half delirious, yeah. dying. Yeah. And it's it's so fecund, and at the same time... I mean, the other story beats are the same, but just imagine that with an adult sensibility. I, I haven't seen Westworld. Luke, you didn't like it, did you? You know what? Every damn week I watch Westworld... <laughs> Uh, and, it, and every damn week I'm disappointed. I put it on. Um, I don't like it because it's too... Um, in, in a nutshell, I find Westworld another great Michael Crichton property. I mean, the film was never a classic. He directed it and it was this terrible, yeah. uh, you know, throwaway 70s B-movie. But the idea of a theme park with uh, where, some, the, where the attraction goes wrong and starts killing the... Uh, the guests does that sound familiar to anyone but <laughs> that's in there uh as the as, uh, the, the robot android um cowboys start killing everyone uh that was great and i thought hey they're going to turn it into an hbo miniseries this is awesome or hbo series i should say um unfortunately it's way too written everyone's got a soliloquy the writers are just it just feels like a writer's wet dream because every character apparently gets a five minute monologue every other scene um but anyway, I'm not a big Westworld fan, but go on. You're, you're, you're pitching me an HBO Jurassic Park series. Go on. For me, that's one of the only ways to take this franchise forward. That's the only way to take most franchises forward. Once you've done possibly one, definitely two, you, n- you need to change genres. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's the Jurassic Park that I want to see, a Jurassic Park in which Muldoon isn't dispensed with by the raptors before the denouement, but instead... We see his slow reversion to alcoholism, and uh, John Hammond. It, what's you know what's more exciting? I mean, in the original, John Hammond is a kind of uh, flawed, benevolent grandfather. Mm. In the book itself, he's kind of a bastard. Yeah, he, now, he he's every subsequent dark side to Walt Disney as um, yeah, a, as a, every subsequent him. Jurassic Park film has had elements of that like Peter Ludlow in the second one and I was watching some of the deleted scenes and the deleted scenes I don't think that it's fair to accept them as canon but they go as far as Jurassic World does in explaining the mercenary aspect of business and uh, dinosaurs for profit but the original Jurassic Park split John Hammond's character basically in two took all of the bad parts and threw them into uh, antagonists in the sequels but it would be better and more interesting to have that flawed John Hammond in Jurassic Park, you know, on the introduction in the first day and a half before everything goes to shit, he's this warm, wonderful grandfather uh, magnate character, like Mizrani in World, and then and he's blaming anyone he can find, yeah, and self pitying. That's that's interesting to me, and uh, I don't know what I'd do with um, very specific details like whether I'd keep Ed Regis, whether Donald Gennaro would be, because of course in the film. 
Gennaro is basically Ed Regis. Yeah, and, and Ed, Ed Regis, I, I think Michael Crichton, Ed Regis is the park's PR guy. And uh, yeah. if anyone's not read the novel, and uh, I think Michael Crichton had a particular problem with PR guys, rather than uh, <laughs> ra- he's probably, as a novelist, he'd probably seen one or two of them uh, in his time. So, yeah, he, he probably had more of m- more of an aversion to PR guys than may- maybe than lawyers. Um, but I guess more people can relate to a lawyer than a PR guy. The blood sucking lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what I do with it. Mm. With a, a different style of cinematography, a different genre of film, a different feel. It doesn't need to be quote-unquote gritty. That term can fuck off. I'm talking about levels of sophistication and a different approach to filmmaking. I, I'm thinking specifically of one of my favourite scenes in the book, which is um, when Muldoon is caught out in the open with the raptors. It's a very short paragraph, and it says... Uh, Hold on a moment, Luke. I'm, I'm going to read it for the audience. We've been indulgent enough. I bet I can find it quickly as well. Just give me one minute. That's no, absolutely no worries. I feel, like I, I, th- I feel like I may have even done this before on the podcast. I'm not sure, but I do love it. So, so this, is the, this is what triggers it in me. This is the scene, and it runs. Muldoon felt a wrenching pain in his ankle, tumbled down an embankment and hit the ground running. Looking back, he saw Gennaro running in the other direction, into the forest, The raptors were ignoring Gennaro, but pursuing Muldoon. They were now less than 20 yards away. Muldoon screamed at the top of his lungs as he ran, wondering vaguely where the hell he could go, because he knew he had perhaps 10 seconds before they got him. 10 seconds, maybe less. That's my imagination for... for, We're talking, I don't know, when did I read it? 12, when I was 12 or 13? 20 years of imagination just flaring at the notion of Bob Peck pelting down and and then jumping into the um irrigation tubing with a bazooka which is you know that comes up in world doesn't it um chris pratt's mate does that with the raptor doesn't he does it? yeah absolutely Do you remember yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah in in the fallen tree in the tree trunk there's so much that can be done with the original text of jurassic park if you flip the genre and make it not a film for adults, but a film with adult sensibility. Yeah, I completely agree with you. There's my pitch. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm, wow. I'm rusty. That, that's, that's, that's way more succinct. It's not quite an elevator pitch, is it? Not quite an elevator pitch, but it is more fully thought out uh, than than mine. You, you've got a good idea for format there, and I like the idea of turning it into a mini series. I guess these days, this is what it this is what it's all about, isn't it? You know, it used to be said, and, and a lot of people know this, but it used to be said that. Um, Back in the day, kids watched TV, adults went to the movie theatre. These days, it's it's more the other way around. And, uh, you know, yeah. in the wake of Sopranos and Sex and the City, whatever, it's more around character development over a 10-episode season rather than uh, or 20-episode season, whatever it is. I would make one concession, though, because when I was... A, I've had this idea for, I don't know, a decade, and I used to think that I'd make it a two-parter, like the old Stephen King yeah. TV two-parter. Well, that was the thing in the and 90s, the first... yeah. That yeah, was the, yeah. that was so the, the format. The, and, and the first episode, uh, the first two hours would be the first day and night on the island, and the second episode would open with waking up on the second day on the island when um, Grant and the kids are in the... I think it's the Stegosaur paddock, mm. and they've slept yeah, in they did, yeah. one of the barns. Where, where They wake up in the hay, you know, and then she rides the Stegosaur, all of mm-hmm. that. Um but now, with the success of the remake of Stephen King's It at the cinema, maybe I'd make two films out of it. So tell me, tell me what you'd do. Well, this is, this, I didn't realise we were going this detailed on, on, <laughs> on the pitch and, and what we would do. But there's things that have long, very, very long time here have, have bugged me. Um, 
the third one, starting with the third one. So the second novel, the first novel is is a really succinct adaptation. It's got the essence of the plot, but ultimately, like we've said, it's about Spielberg's story about a family and a, a guy becoming a surrogate father. Um, the, the, the second one is radically different. It, it, it boils down to the core of what the novel is, which is about hunters and gatherers. But the novel is very, very different in tone. Characters are very different. Set piece is very different. Um, all manner of things. Now, the third one, they had so many things from the, the first novel that you've mentioned and also the second, so many things that were untapped that could have concluded it as a franchise, as a trilogy, in the same way that Alien 3 did, where, you know, Ripley does die. The alien does eventually kill her. It, it impregnates her. Uh, and that has a lot a, a lot to say there, or it's, it's trying to. Um, and I think that there's a lot of stuff. The thing you said, go back to the original text. They, they do that in James Bond and have done two or three times. Go back to the original text. Go back to see what, what Fleming was writing about the character and take out elements of that. Casino Royale, of course, very literally, they go back to the very first novel and go back to the original Bond kind of character and go back to the original Bond novel and what that's all about. And I think that the thing that bugged me about the the third one, and I still think you could kind of do this now, um, but what bugged me about the third one was they had no story to tell. And yet there was oodles of story throughout the uh, throughout the, the the first two novels. So one of the main things that I love about the original Jurassic Park novel is that none of the main characters are in it for a long long time. I'm not saying that you replicate this exactly for a film or TV show, but what I like about it is it it's, starts off as a mystery. Uh, the original Jurassic Park novel starts off uh, where there's a series of bizarre animal attacks in Costa Rica um, on the mainland. And there's, it begins with a worker who's severely injured uh, in a construction project. And uh, his employers airlift him into this little hospital. We're introduced to this uh, doctor. And he's got these bizarre animal bites and lacerations all over him. And apparently he was just injured in, in an industrial accident. But it's a complete mystery. Eventually, this doctor, just nothing sits right with... with I think it's a her... Am I right in that? I think it's a female doctor. She then enlists the help of... of, uh, It it goes on and on. This mystery unravelling. She eventually uh, comes across paleontologist Dr. Alan Grant and his his student at the time, Dr. Ellie Sattler. And uh, and then they confirm identification as uh, as a compi, uh, Procom Signatus. And that then leads us into the stuff within Jen and the park. And that's how Grant becomes involved and Grant and Ellie become involved. I think there's a whole thing, and it intrigues me that Jurassic Park 3, uh, early script for it, did deal with these mysterious bitings on the mainland. It's so intriguing because not only does this doctor have, as she's unraveling this mystery, uh, for example, the word raptor is a. Um, uh, it talks about in kind of hushed whispers uh, uh, amongst the Hispanic population. It means like a child snatcher and some someone will come in the yeah. night and take children. And uh, there, there's these fantastic little scenes that Crichton teases uh, about kind of folklore and and the dinosaurs. Maybe they're like monsters in some way. They're coming in the night. They're not. They're not creatures. 
it's really, really fascinating. And I think if you were to reboot it completely, I'd definitely bring in that whole element throughout the first third or something. Like, I don't know. Uh, that, that could become a whole thing. I think the Jurassic Park 3 script, at one point, it's alleged that maybe Grant and some of the characters from the first film were investigating issues on the mainland where there were mysterious bitings and there were issues where the where where animals perhaps from that island were getting onto the mainland and and causing issues but i think there's a fascinating element there the second thing is the second novel the se- the second novel has so much stuff that's untapped now i mentioned earlier on gambler's ruin which is an element of chaos theory where uh if things go bad this kept with me since i was eight years old since i read this damn novel when things go bad, they tend to stay bad. It's kind of like Fortune's Wheel, right? In to another literary allegory. You're up on on the tables. You're doing really well. You win, you win, you win. And then you get then when things go bad, they all go bad for a while. Part of chaos theory. There's a lot of scientific theory in the Lost World novel that's not tapped into. Beyond things like Gambler's Ruin, which I believe were in the original Jurassic uh, sorry, Lost World script. There's other things. It deals a lot about evolution and how the dinosaurs have survived on the island when the Lysine contingency should have killed them off. And it talks a lot about how, you know, the dinosaurs were manufactured artificially, but the island managed to reach an equilibrium. Some of this stuff's dealt away, dealt with with throwaway lines in the in the Lost World movie. And I know that a movie has to be a movie, and it can't deal with loads of exposition, loads of scientific theory, but I do think there's there's some interesting things to be had here, and I'll pick up on one in particular. So it turns out in the Lost World novel that um, the, the the team, Malcolm's good guy team, who look very different to the team in, in the film, um, has been researching in the laboratory, they've been researching in the InGen lab, that InGen uh, had fed, been feeding young carnivore dinosaurs sheep extract, uh, sheep extract infected with prions, which co- causes a disease uh, which shortens the dinosaur's lifespans. It's something called DX. If you're really into the universe of Jurassic Park, you'll remember the early marketing for The Lost World had, uh, in fact, a lot of the marketing for The Lost World used to have, like, it was on pencil cases and everything. You'd have, like, a Triceratops pencil case, and it, and it had, it would say Triceratops species da-da-da-da, have little stats for it. And it would say on there, Site B, which of course is either Sauna, DX, tag and release. And that was the reason the dinosaurs on either Sauna were free. They were developing this disease, which the the scientists didn't understand, and they were setting them free on the island to try and uh, have the island again reach this equilibrium, maybe, so they could get rid of this disease or riddle it out in some way. They, the disease is, is DX, and the dinosaurs' lifespans were shortening as a result of this. So the scientists eventually, I think, managed to contain the disease. It spreads um, and after they abandon the island. So the dinosaurs all on the island are going to die anyway. So you kind of have this whole adventure through the island uh, in, in the Lost World novel, and then you realise that the dinosaurs are going to die anyway. And I think, again, I know you can't have a lot of exposition, but I think there's some really interesting things to be said here about evolution and about 
the way the world is supposed to go anyway. Malcolm says it in the first film when he says, this isn't some species that was threatened by deforestation or the building of a dam. Dinosaurs had their shot and nature selected them for extinction. It'd be interesting to see in the third Jurassic World film if they try and have any kind of allegory of this sort of thing at all. Uh, because clearly they're setting up the idea, idea that dinosaurs are kind of like live alongside humans in some way. But what really bummed me out as an eight, nine-year-old, ten-year-old kid was when the marketing materials for Lost World came through. I saw this tantalising thing, which was BX tag and release on pencil cases and posters. I thought it was going to be a major plot point of the film because it it was in the novel and they were using it in marketing materials. And unfortunately, it's not touched upon at all. And I think the idea that all the dinosaurs are going to die anyway, even though they're running around killing people throughout the movie. I think there's this idea of of how kind of evolution works or how equilibrium works, how nature eventually settles itself out. Man trying to control things by feeding the animals extracts or whatever they're trying to do to to make them better or faster or stronger or whatever. I think that this is a fascinating idea there. So I don't have an idea for a format in the way you do, Fletch, but I think that there's two really two or three really interesting elements. Uh, from the original novels that have never even been touched. Uh, and I also made a note of just the fantastic set pieces. I won't go into details. Some of which you mentioned in the first novel, you've got Muldoon running around with a rocket launcher against the raptors, for example. Yeah. Like, what? why did it never get that extreme? Uh, I appreciate in 93 you couldn't pull it off. There's one guy with a rocket launcher in Jurassic World, but why isn't there more of that? Uh, raptor. Yeah, he blows up a raptor. He doesn't does. He? It's one of the. It's one of the few points of. Of true emotion, I'd say, of of connection. However you read it, the film is extraordinarily cynical, but that moment strikes me as uh, as Owen looks at the raptor and then it explodes in front of him. That's saying something, isn't it? That's trying to say something honest and new. Other than that, yeah, not enough rocket launchers. There never has been enough rocket launchers for me. <laughs> I agree. And, you know, the reason I put it in there is because, you know, I talked about it a lot. Uh, we also talked, you mentioned Raptors on the Roof. It's a great scene with Malcolm on his deathbed looking up at the Raptors in the skylight as they're gnawing on the bars to get into the into the building yeah, below. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be like Kurtz in Apocalypse Now, that kind of poetic rambling. mm that level, I think, between us. But yours is a pitch. I think once we join them together, then we might have something there. Yeah, we could, we could this, easily... This is, this is what I mean. Yeah, we could... There's extraordinary potential for this series. And if it had been dealt with as the Alien series has been, if at any point the Money Men had had the courage to switch it up entirely... And remember as well, all right, Jurassic Park and The Lost World both have to appeal to PG audiences. That was decided. That's I'll accept that. But... We are the generation that grew up with Jurassic Park. So there is an audience of 30 to 45-year-olds who adored that film in 93, who hold it in great esteem and with incredible romance. And if you made an 18-rated Jurassic Park, they'd go to see it. It's not going to take a billion. It probably would even take half a billion. Well, it'll do Logan get business. three or four hundred million. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it, it would do Logan's business. And it would do better, for instance, than... Uh, Mad Max Fury Road, which I think is uh, among the best pictures and definitely one of the best action pictures of the century. Mm. And it's it's funny, isn't it? Because as a franchise, uh, from the very beginning, it was talking about chaos theory. It was right it's there. One of it its brought it into mathematician. Yeah, that, that, that's what I think. That's... Is, that film, that first film, is so fantastic for 
people get chaos theory about unpredictability. Like that's that's directly yeah. from Crichton's novel, and yeah, it's not all over the shop, but in the film, but it's it's there. It is front and center, and wow, like every that's people know what it is. It, 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 it slays me, it irritates me when individuals claim it's no brain fun, oh, it's just entertainment, it's a kid's film, you go to the cinema and you have a good time. That's not where it started, that's not where it started. Mm. It started with, as Luke and I have always um, harked back to, about 30 minutes into Jurassic Park there is a two minute conversation between the adult protagonists about the ethics of bringing back these dinosaurs, about what it means. Mm. A two or three minute scene, and it's not exposition either, because modern films, modern blockbusters are full of exposition. No, it's dealing with themes. It's individuals is giving their characters opinion. Mm. There's a level of sophistication there. And I even like the way that it's shot, Black Room. Yeah, yeah. As they've had dinner, and it really does feel like Larry King or Charlie Rose, where... Six smart people, six or how many yeah. people is Having it? a round table discussion. Six, isn't it? Five, six, yeah, five, six, seven smart people in a room saying, here we are, why have you done mm. this? What does it mean that you've done this? What, is, what does it mean to us? Yeah. What does it mean to the world? How does it reflect something that we're talking about? That's where the franchise began. Yeah. It should be like that over and over. It shouldn't just be... Uh, Rafe Spall expositioning, as you say, as a moustache twirling baddie, saying, you're the same as us and I'm the same as you. All right, yeah, but by that point, we've suffered through maybe 70 minutes of dull nonsense. <laughs> uh, I felt like I felt like the Pachycephalosaurus. I was ready to ram my head through a wall <laughs> to get out of there. Another couple... I'll, I'll finish up on this, and then we can conclude. There's just... I'll very briefly, another couple of scenes... I have no idea why these have not been used, that Crichton set these up in the Lost World novel for Spielberg to create a scene out of. The High Hide, for example, they set that up in the Lost World film. Uh, Eddie Carr, Richard Stiff's character, says, people go up and they hide. High, it's a high hide. They go up there, and then, they go, and then apparently they just leave it again in the film to go and rescue the guys from the trailers with the Rexes. In the High Hide, uh, the novel, the Lost World novel, it's a great scene where they're having to take the... Um, aluminium poles from the roof of the high hide as raptors are, are jumping up at them at biting height and snapping at them and they're having to swing the poles like um, like baseball bats and smash the raptors around the head in the high, as they're in the high hide. That, that escalates into a motorcycle chase scene where a raptor has a key around its nose that it accidentally got stuck to its nose Oh, for yeah. the cage, which one of the kids then is is trapped in, so the raptors are taking this cage off back to their nest, and then there's the Sarah Harding is on the on the motorcycle that I think sort of morphed its way into Jurassic World, uh, yeah. I, I, in a way. But th- there's another scene in that novel again. It morphed its way into Jurassic World, but in no meaningful way. In Jurassic World, the, they they shout. Someone shouts that the Indominus Rex can camouflage. And that's why it suddenly just appears in the scene. But in the novel, in the Lost World novel, there's a very extended scene in the workers' village uh, where the, the film kind of ends up with raptors. But in in the novel, they're in the workers' village, they're trying to spend the night there. And then these two dinosaurs, the carnosaurs, they, they can camouflage into the background. So they can just kind of make out their outline, get a sense that they're there, and then they appear and would, you know, try and snap them up. Crichton was writing that for Spielberg, and they, he never, I'd never realised, I never know quite why they haven't put that in a movie. 
And I guess the final one, and this is my favourite one, either one of the Jurassic World films would have done well to take this, especially the first one. As they're running through the visitor's centre away from the raptors, Grant is cornered by the raptors in the hatchery with all the eggs. And the the raptors have him cornered in the in the entranceway. The raptors there, and he he remembers suddenly that raptors are, uh, would eat eggs. Any dinosaur, they're all egg snatchers. They they all eat an egg, and he he picks a syringe from the side very very slowly, trying not to move, trying not to spook the dinosaur, injects the egg from the hatchery that he just gets from the side. We've seen it obviously earlier on in the movie, injects it with with poison. He then very slowly, carefully has to roll the egg toward the dinosaur, who you know is very inquisitive, not quite sure what to make of the the gift he's given it, and then eats the egg up. Nothing happens. He has to try again, and you know again, you know, it's, it's, there's this tension building, and then finally the raptor, just as it's about to eat him, starts foaming at the mouth, and and drops to its side because the poison's finally kicked in. Um, I know that the Jurassic films have always been a bit more kinetic than that, but to me, it, that's all the makings of a great scene in there somewhere. So anyway, th- there's, yeah, there's my I've, start I've for I've long ten. thought that. I've long thought that because the deus ex machina at the end of Jurassic Park works cinematically, but ten minutes after leaving the cinema, you realise, yes, yeah, it's, it's pretty silly. I think thematically what is better is what you've explained, that scene with Grant and the eggs. Where the you know the, the humans outwit the smart dinosaurs, yeah, yeah, and I think again that would that would change the genre and take away from the bombast, and slow it down, to um, an inexorable crawl of tension. I think a modern marketplace is ready for that, and certainly television is ready for that as well. That would be, re- I think, done properly. That could be very exciting. Again, we're talking you and I. It's difficult. It's difficult because we know the outcome. Like he rolls the eggs eventually. The thing eats mm. it. Yeah, but you're there's... right. You're right about these extended shots. The camera doesn't have to cut anymore because it's all CG. The dinosaurs run through scenery in these new films like it's made of paper mache. I know. I don't understand it. And and oh, and, yeah. and the Rex. Yeah. The Rex is starting to wake up in the new film, uh, and then they just lock the door with the little like rabbit hutch lock. Uh, but then, but then, yeah. <laughs> but then that's the end of the scene. Yeah. And I'm like, but hold on. I thought yeah. this thing just. In the new films, I'm led to believe it just is like Godzilla and just walks through buildings. So, like, why does... Yeah. Why is... <laughs> that stops it. I don't get it. There's no consistency yeah. in its own universe, you know? It's not exciting. Again, it goes back to one of the central conceits, but we have become used to dinosaurs. What that should mean to filmmakers is that they have to come up with a better plot and more precise filmmakings mm. in order to evince tension mm. and suspense but uh, that hasn't been what we should write done. a spec, that's why uh, I want... script fletch i think between your <laughs> format uh my stuff that's not maybe been used yet you know some of the more mystery elements uh some of the subplots that have been long forgotten i think we've got a 10-part miniseries here one thing that could be done is assigning different directors to different episodes in order to emphasize their strengths mm. we could come up with a dozen directors like would it have been fun to see david lynch's return of the jedi for instance Lynch's sensibilities applied outside of his usual interests would be thrilling. Just from a cinematic point of view, it would be thrilling to see, I'm not saying what he would do with Jurassic World, but he would definitely frame dialogue scenes and scenes of tension in a different and more interesting way than what we have at the moment, which with Trevorrow, with Abrams, is a lot of Spielberg clones. None of of them 
directorially are coming up with anything of their own, are, are really originating their own style in any meaningful way. I, I didn't mind... Uh, Trevorrow and Connolly, I quite liked the way they wrote Jurassic World, but that goodwill has disintegrated with Fallen Kingdom. I can't believe it's written by the same people. Mm. And as usual, I'm always happy to just attribute anything good to John Sayles. The one thing I will apologise for is... I. We've just literally come off the back of walking out the cinema after seeing the new film. We did feel a bit let down. We we tried so hard not to be cynical. There were things in there to like. I hope that we at least mentioned them, if not if not spoke about them at length. And this wasn't really a chat about Fallen Kingdom specifically. It's more the way the franchise has gone and the potential that it has. Thinking about what what could be and and where that could go as a premise. Um, given given to different people, given in different hands. It's important not to be cynical, but it's important to be critical. Mm. And we are critical, and this is a critical appreciation. And I think elements of Jurassic World show a fan's critical appreciation of Jurassic Park, and it's best that's best done by fans. That's best done by people who do genuinely enjoy. That's why pastiche, when the Coen Brothers pastiche. It's best done by experts in the field because they can do it with the greatest incision. And Luke, you are an expert in Jurassic Park. I'm not. Well, I'm I'm a guy. To the extent that you are, but you you definitely. I'm, I'm a guy are. who's devoured every computer game since Blue Skies, Mega Drive, and Ocean's SNES game in '93. I've devoured every every video game. I had all the Game Boy Advance Jurassic Park three games. They produced three of them. I had all of them. You know, I, I'm a, I've been there when IDW got the comic book license for Jurassic Park in 2010, and it was the only Jurassic Park product going out there. I bought every issue, and they all sucked, but I bought every single last one. <laughs> and I always wanted to, you know, I've always been looking for somewhere for this to go. I've had such a deep love and respect for the original source material and what it what it means to me. Jurassic Park got me into cinema, and that's the end of the sentence. It was the first Spielberg film I ever saw. It's the second film I saw at the cinema because the first one was Beauty and the Beast. It started my long love affair with with the medium. So I, I've stuck with it. So I've stuck with the the Jurassic Park f- franchise through thick and thin. I'm not saying that gives me license to 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 completely shit on the new film. Uh, and there was stuff in there that was cool and fun and interesting, but. But boy, oh boy, this um, this ain't for me. And I, I, I think it's time to reevaluate, truly reevaluate what it could be. And it's probably time to give it like a 10-year rest. Do you remember when people used to do that? They'd give something a 10, 15-year rest. We don't need to reboot it four years later or whatever. Um, I think give yeah. it a good rest. Let's come up with a miniseries in 10 years' time. Whatever. Fletch and I will need 10 years to do the spec script anyway. So Give it to John Sayles. Have a dialogue wash by Shane Black. Christopher Nolan can direct it with Roger Deakins or Hoyt Van Hoytema. Yeah, we'll get a story by credit. <laughs> story by George Lucas. There we go. Anyway, yeah, no worries. <laughs> You've been listening to Fletcher Walton and Luke Littleboy in our first foray back into the electronic labyrinth. This month, stay tuned to One Sensational Shot on Spotify and on iTunes for the return of our bi-weekly magazine podcast, The Evening Glass. Visit our eBay store, One Sensational Shop, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook for reviews, previews and recommendations. 
for a shot-by-shot -shot analysis of what makes Jurassic Park a cinematic success. Visit onesensationalshot.com for our own write-up of Spielberg's sometimes stunning filmmaking ability. We'll leave you with a favourite scene of ours, a scene we consider to be something of a high watermark of 90s blockbusters. Next time the credits roll but you still feel hungry, think about the modern directors that have proven the possibilities of popular cinema, making pictures rich in both spectacle and theme, who understand the difference between explaining a plot and telling a story. Spielberg, Cameron, Fincher, George Miller, Edgar Wright, that lot are giving it a go, so why should we accept anything less? We can charge anything we want, say 10000 a day, and people will pay it. And then there's the merchandise. And I can personally Donald, Donald. This park was not built to cater only for the super-rich. Everyone in the world has the right to enjoy these animals. Sure, they will. I mean, what, we'll have a, a coupon day or something? <laughs> Gee, the lack of humility before nature that's being displayed here um, staggers me. Well, thank you, Dr. Malcolm, but I think things are a little bit different than you and I had feared. Yeah, I know. They're a lot worse. Now, wait a second. Now, we haven't even... Seen the part no, no, where Donald, 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 let him talk. There's no reason. No, no, I want to hear a review part. I really do. Yeah, yeah. don't you see the danger, uh, John, inherent uh, in what you're doing here? Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. It's hardly appropriate to start hurling <laughs> generalizations. If I may, um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Condors. Condors are on the verge of extinction. And if oh. I was to could not know, if I was to create a flock of condors on this island, you wouldn't have anything to say. No, hold on. This isn't this isn't some species that was obliterated by deforestation or or the building of a dam. Dinosaurs uh, uh, had their shot and nature selected them for extinction. I simply don't understand this Luddite attitude, especially from a scientist. I mean, how can we stand in the light of discovery and, and not act? Oh, what's so great about discovery? It's a violent, penetrative act that scars what it explores, what you call discovery. I call the rape of the natural world. Well, the question is, how can you know anything about an extinct ecosystem? And therefore, how could you ever assume that you can control it? You have plants in this building that are poisonous. You pick them because they look good. But these are aggressive living things that have no idea what century they're in, and they'll defend themselves violently if necessary. Dr. Grant, if there's one person here who could appreciate what I'm trying to do... The world has just changed so radically, and we're all running to catch up. I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but look. Dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution, just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea of what to expect? I don't believe 
I don't believe it. You're meant to come down here and defend me against these characters, and the only one I've got on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer. <laughs> Thank you. See, there's a reason everyone remembers Goldblum as Malcolm. If you're not getting that level of patience and insight from popular cinema, then you need to ask why. This has been the Electronic Labyrinth. We do hope you'll join us again soon. Thank you very much for listening. Vegas, baby, Vegas.